Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct our Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. The ideas of human rights and uh, economic development and their promotion in poor countries are ones that garner widespread support in the West, and many of us believe that uh, indeed those are goals to which poor people around the world do aspire. And yet growth and human rights are often thought about and treated as though they were two wholly separate uh, fields and often in conflict. When we talk about trade, for example, we correctly note the economic benefits of trade, the dynamic gains, the the creation of wealth, uh, the reduction of poverty, for example, but, but much less often do we hear the human rights case or the rights case uh, made in favor of trade and voluntary exchange. Indeed, uh, human rights groups regularly malign certain aspects of economic freedom as somehow being incompatible or even uh, undermining of rights. Likewise, the development community, in which I include groups like the World Bank and so on, often disparage basic rights, such as property rights or personal choice, in their uh, aid projects, uh, which in turn oftentimes support regimes that have human rights uh, records that are uh, quite poor. Today, in the midst of a global financial crisis, uh, the debate on development, foreign aid, and the role of business and, and basic rights has become even more relevant as poor countries around the world are responding in different ways to the crisis, and as rich countries are on the verge of providing massive foreign aid to the developing world on a scale uh, never seen before. That's why I'm pleased to have uh, uh, two, our two speakers today uh, who are uh, very well qualified to, to address this issue. Our first speaker I'll, I'll introduce now, and then I'll introduce our second speaker uh, afterwards, is uh, Jean-Pierre Chafour, who will be presenting his book, The Power of Freedom, Uniting Human Rights and Development, in which he describes the current incoherent approach to the two issues and pr proposes a mutually supportive uh, approach that reclaims the place of freedom in both uh, human rights and development. Jean-Pierre is especially well qualified to address uh, these issues. He spent 15 years working at the IMF and uh, many years in Geneva as the IMF's representative to the WTO and the United Nations where he would regularly come up uh, against human rights groups that opposed uh, aspects of trade liberalization. His experiences there uh, helped to inspire this book. He is now at the World Bank as an advisor in the trade uh, department, in the international trade department, and has worked in countries all around the world. He has a vast experience in uh, the developing world. Please help me welcome Jean-Pierre Chefour. Thank you, Yann, for your kind words and the generous introduction. And thank you, everybody, for, for coming. Uh, the nice thing about Washington is that there are many competing events at lunchtime. So I appreciate very much that you uh, take the time to, uh, and the interest to, to come to this presentation. I'd like to start with the usual disclaimer. As uh, Yann was mentioning, I work for uh, the World Bank. But it should be clear that the views that I'm going to express today and the book itself uh, 
are my own, express my own views, and, and uh, in, uh, in no case reflect on the opinions of the IMF, the World Bank, or any of their related entities. Charles Dickens began uh, a tale of two cities with a famous sentence, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. So is it the best of time or the worst of time to publish a book on the role of economic freedom as a human right and as a mean to development? When you read the press, um, you see that there is a consensus around the fact that we may be experiencing a, uh, a shift in the cycle after 20 years or so of pro-market reforms and deregulation. The world would be uh, aiming at a situation where government would be on the offensive and mar market on retreat. And I was just looking at the foreign affairs that was just released, uh, I guess, a few days ago, and one of the uh, uh, lead article is about the end of, I mean, the question mark is, is it the end of free market? So what I would like you to take away from this presentation today is that actually it's still, it's still the best of times to talk about uh, economic freedom, uh, uh, as a, uh, not only as a human right, but as a tool for development. And um, it's mostly important for developing countries. Because if developed countries are implementing various stimulus packages, uh, bailouts of, of the financial systems, and other uh, domestic support to certain sectors of the economy and with a willingness to regulate more, we know that these um, policies would be reverted when times comes while for developing countries, the situation is more complicated. And um, it is true that developed countries are still playing a role model for many developing countries in terms of the economic thinking, in terms of policy making, and so we need to make sure that uh, it's still the best of time to talk about the relationship between the individual and the government, and hopefully it's still an age of wisdom, but uh, one, one shall see. I would like to thank and I'd like to start in thanking the, the Cato Institute for uh, supporting and publishing this book. I would like in particular to thank uh, Jan, the director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, for uh, uh, supporting this book with almost no reservations. Since I contacted Jan, I think it was two years ago, he has been a, a fervent advocate of this work. And I would like to publicly uh, thank you and your, and your staff as well for um, remarkable work in terms of publishing and, and, uh, and uh, marketing this book. Um, I think this book has little to do with my name, to be frank, because this is my first book. But I think it has, and I hope it has to do with the content of the book, which in a way reassures me. I have no particular affiliation, um, but I think the book resonates very much with, uh, with the work of the Cato Institute in terms of promoting individual liberty, free market, and peace. And I hope this is a, a contribution to that, uh, to that debate. It's a short book. It's only 130 pages, which uh, touch upon a wide range of, of issues. And obviously, if you touch many different types of issues from economic development, economic growth, human rights, governance, participation, democracy, free will, you can only touch upon these issues since you know, many of them would deserve you know, volume in itself. So the point of that book is to connect the dots between all these various elements. And um, uh, what the book, so the book is not making any major uh, advancement in terms of 
any of this field. But what the book is trying to do is to uh, shift the attention on how we think about development in a human rights context and how we think about uh, human rights in a development context and try to connect the dots between, between all these uh, elements. Uh, it's a short book, but there is a little secret about this book, is that there is a book in the book. Because um, if you look at the uh, uh, footnotes, you will see that there are many footnotes, maybe something like 300 footnotes, I don't know. And these footnotes are not only about uh, references. They are really uh, part of the story. And I hope you find them uh, uh, informative and at, at time uh, even fun to read. Um, so the main, main theme of this book is that and I will use the uh, expression that has been uh, uh, used by Philip Alston, the uh, professor of law at New York University, talking about the human rights community and the development community as two ships passing by in the night with little awareness of each other. And um, my experience, um, as Jan was mentioning in Geneva, actually has shown me firsthand that there was indeed very little awareness about the work being conducted by these two communities. And um, so the main theme is that these, these communities are passing by each other. And, um, and freedom, in a way, is the uh, interlink between them. If, if one uh, uh, deals with some of the issues, and I will come back to that later, but you will see that you, you, my, my point is that freedom could be, could be an element of, of uh, unification. So the book has two main propositions in terms of understanding why freedom is important in terms of the relevance of the world in which we are living, and especially from the point of view of the development and human rights communities. The first proposition is that the lack of the recognition of the importance of, of, of this relationship between human rights and development is at the core of, I would say, two uh, drawbacks or two failures of our time. The one is the achievement of the MDGs, to what extent we are able to, to make progress towards the MDGs, and what is impeding us to our countries that are least developed to make major progress. And the second proposition is that the inconsistent and incoherent treatment of freedom, economic freedom in particular, in both frameworks, you know, in the development framework and in the human rights framework, is at the core of these uh, two failures. So maybe I should spend a few minutes talking about um, what I mean by inconsistent. In the, starting with the, um, the development community, it's true that over the last 20 years, um, the policy agenda has been modeled around what we call the Washington Consensus, and some, something that some critics would call the market fundamentalism. So it's true that many developing countries have made major progress through market reform, through liberalization, through deregulation, and so on. But at the same time, many developing countries and least developing countries have not fully embraced this agenda and are still kind of lagging behind. And uh, in many instances, when policymakers are uh, producing policies in these countries, they pay only lip service to the role of economic freedom in their own development strategy. Uh, very pay lip service to the role of, um, for instance, property rights, how to promoting the capacity for individuals to, to own, to exchange, to save, to invest, to create. And these are the, uh, the root of development. And unfortunately, it's not always, always put at the top of the agenda. And I think looking at the uh, human rights community's inconsistencies there is even more striking. In a sense that the human rights law 
um, the bodies and the treaties um, mix various in their philosophy mix and, and different concepts that are difficult to reconcile. And here I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to the role of negative and positive rights. Negative rights are, to make it short, are the freedom from, you know, uh, to, be, uh, to be executed, to be uh, repressed, to, to, be, uh, uh, to, ex to express your... It, it's the freedom that emerged from the, uh, the philosophers of the Enlightenment, if you want. And then you have a set of other rights, which are the positive rights, which are not freedom from, but right to, which are claims and, and entitlement on society. The right to education, to health, to, to housing, to appearance in public without shame. Um, and, uh, and the point is that these negative and, and, and positive rights at some, uh, at some level are quite inconsistent. Uh, it's difficult to reconcile the right to property and the right to housing at a certain level of, of abstraction. And this is, and this is, a, and this is problematic because this uh, genuine in incoherence is impeding the human rights community to reach out in terms of its achievement and in, in materializing what can be done with, with, with a right-based approach to development. And these positive rights are not orthogonal rights in a sense that they are all dependent, dependent on, a, on a common underlying factor. As soon as you have income, you can achieve your social goals, education, health, housing, etc. So the underlying variable is income, while for negative rights, there is no underlying variable. All these rights are just orthogonal rights. Um, and furthermore, the question about income then becomes how do you generate income? And the proposition in the book, as it was done before me, obviously, is that the interplay of the negative rights would generate the type of income that are needed to fulfill the social goals. And this is how the book is uh, viewing uh, the, uh, the human rights approach to development. Furthermore, there are a number, also the UN um, treaties always consider human rights as interdependent, indivisible, and interrelated. The problem is that there are a number of, of rights that are just missing there, negative rights in particular. The right, economic freedom is not, an, is not a human right. Uh, the right to property is only obliquely uh, referred to in human rights treaties. And there are other rights, like to engage in economic activity, right to save, the right capacity to invest, and so on and so forth, that is not even discussed. Another dimension that is missing, in my view, is the right of people to move across international borders. Uh, while, it has, while discrimination based on, on race, on religion, um, uh, has uh, retreated over the years, it is still uh, acceptable to uh, treat people uh, and to prevent people from moving across borders only by the uh, accidental uh, location of their birth. And this is something that, uh, of course, is a big agenda, and it's a politically sensitive agenda, but we need to be tackled at some point. So the, the book argument, as the title you know, uh, mentioned, is that um, freedom, it's all its economic, civil, and political dimension, is a way to unite, to reconcile the, uh, the development and the human rights communities. So as also Jan was pointing out at the, at the, in the introduction, you know, this work began when I was the um, IMF representative in Geneva, 
and I was asked to participate on, in, a, in the United Nations Task Force on the implementation on the right to development, because there is such a thing as a right to development. And this was after 15 years of experience where I traveled to you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, to the Middle East, to Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union, and where, as an IMF economist, you know, um, I tend to approach issues in terms of trade-off, in terms of opportunity cost, trade-off between today and tomorrow, between uh, consumption and saving, trade-off between uh, taxing and, and expenditures, you know, to what extent, you know, um, there is a, this, you know, an opportunity cost of taxing people for, uh, for spending, and obviously trade-off about the use of resources. Um, any, any particular resources allocated to, say, education is a forbidden opportunity to allocate these resources to health. Uh, so the thrust of, of the policy dialogue that we had over time was to try to um, help countries make decisions that would hopefully uh, deliver a superior outcome based on all this trade-off. So it's a difficult choice. Often it's a long and consuming exercise, and development is not a quick fix, obviously. And then there is a right to development. Development is a right. And um, maybe I could just read the, uh, the first uh, article of the Declaration on the Right to Development. The right to development is an inalienable human right by virtue of which every human person and all peoples are entitled to participate in, contribute to, and enjoy economic, social, cultural, and political development in which all human rights and fundamental freedoms can be fully realized. It's a bit wordy, but uh, the point is that the right to development is a sort of an umbrella human right that covers both the civil and political rights as well as the positive rights, the economic, social, and cultural rights, as a sort of a solid solidarity right where not only governments are obligated to provide the resources that are needed to fulfill these rights, but when governments don't have the resources to do so, the international community has an obligation to do so. So that, that's it. You know, the right to development is a solution. Of course, you know, the question becomes how do you generate the resources that are needed in order to fulfill all these, uh, all these goals. And uh, I was you know, of, uh, quite sympathetic to, to, the, to, view, to the view of Amatya Sen in, when, in, in Development as Freedom when he wrote, this apparent victory of the idea and use of human rights coexist with some real skepticism in critically demanding circle about the depth and coherence of this approach. The suspicion is that there is something a little simple-minded about the entire conceptual structure that underlies, underlies the oratory on human rights, unquote. But at the same time, when I was participating in this task force, and I must say that some eminent people were part of this task force, starting with this uh, chair, uh, Ellen johnson Selif, who then became the, uh, the first uh, uh, woman president in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, what I was struck is that there was an element of truth in terms of the paradigm shift that constitutes a right-based approach as opposed to the usual development programs shifting the attention from policy, of policymakers to the, to the importance of rights, I think is a, is a innovative view, I mean, is, is a productive way of, of thinking about development. Because my own experience, too, is that 
Also, governments are involved in many programs that probably they should not be involved with, like, I don't know, rationing credit, credit controlling prices, uh, being engaged in commercial activities, and so on and so forth. The government are not providing the basic uh, infrastructure that are needed for people to live a free life. And, um, and this is all about rights. And this is about freedom rights and the, and the, uh, and the negative rights. So I was really uh, engaged in this uh, task force because I saw that this was, uh, a, a, there was a possibility there of shifting a little bit the, uh, the, the thinking and, the, um, and, the, uh, and, uh, and influencing the outcome of the task force. So maybe briefly I will, I will uh, tell you a little bit about the book itself. Um, the book has two parts. The first part deals with the, some of the issues I've been talking about, how to understand human rights in development. So it put this, really, you know, this declaration on the right to development that was adopted in 1986 in its uh, historical context, which, which was, because, because it has been elaborated over the years, it was a context of the Cold War, the decolonization movement, the uh, ascension of uh, some uh, nationalist um, uh, movement as well. And, um, and in a way, it's a compromise text. It's a compromise text, text between two blocks, between uh, the Soviet Union, who, which was pushing for you know, the positive rights, and the uh, Western world, who was more inclined to see that the preeminence of the negative rights, the liberty rights. And as a compromise, of course, this original compromise, in a way, was a seed for its uh, ineffectiveness because of the inconsistency. And especially the inconsistency as to the, who is the uh, ultimate duty bearer of this type of rights. Who has responsibility at the end of the day to provide the right to development? And what does it mean? At the same time, there is a pattern of this civil and political rights and economic freedom being um, percolating in, in many different ways in the development community. Uh, when you uh, look at the poverty reduction strategies of many developing countries, you could see that this uh, notion of negative rights, although they are not used in those terms, but uh, are already the, the triggers or the, or the parameters in which to provide de uh, uh, development and development assistance. For instance, participation is a very important component of uh, the PRSP process to make sure that the people that are going to be affected by policies have a voice. Uh, likewise, when you look at the MDGs, you could see that the Millennium Development Goals, that uh, each goal uh, resonates with, uh, with a human right. Uh, you know, when the MDG is focusing on health, focusing on education, uh, etc. There is, an, there is a correspondence and a close congruence between, between this objective and the uh, human rights uh, treaty bodies. And um, in terms of uh, development assistance, of course, I mean, the performance of development assistance has been mixed over the last 60 years. And I think the Dambiza Moyo was here a few days ago making a very strong case uh, in her book, uh, Dead Ed. And... Um, but what I would uh, like to add to this debate is that actually um, many donors, bilateral donors and multilateral donors, have shifted their attention when they provide you know, uh, development assistance. And you can see that 
the importance of having a democratic system, having people for having countries for which some uh, basic rights are uh, fulfilled before uh, uh, assistance can uh, can come in. I think these these are developments that uh, illustrate the fact that slowly but hopefully uh, in a sustainable way, the development and the human rights uh, uh, approach uh, can combine to produce development. So this is the audacity of hope in that book. Uh, um, the second part of the book has to do with how, if one accepts this proposition of the importance of rights and the right-based approach to development, what does it mean in terms of uh, development? In terms of the features of your of your policies, starting with your, you know, the kind of ideas and the paradigm that you want to push forward, and then the institution and the policies. Because development is about economic growth. Okay, I think that's a fairly reasonable proposition. Now the question is, what generate economic growth? One can say investment, human capital would generate uh, economic growth. But then, why is it that? certain countries are more able to provide um, higher level of investment and a higher level of human capacities. This has to do with policies. And then when you push back the reasoning, asking why certain countries adopt certain policies and not other countries, often now it's, 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 it's viewed that institution matters a lot because institution will generate the type of policies that are needed to generate the type of investment that are needed for growth. And then if you push back the envelope a little bit further and you ask yourself about why is it that certain countries are able to produce certain institutions and others not? And here it becomes tricky. It becomes really the, uh, the research agenda. And I hope Suzanne will shed light on that. Because why is it that certain countries are able to generate certain type of institution? Uh, some scholars have pointed to the fact that the original endowment may be an explanation the concentration of resources may be an explanation as to why certain institutions develop and not others. And what I'm uh, proposing in that book is that freedom, and to what extent freedom is a value being shared by society and by policymakers, would frame the type of institution that a country put in place, and then will frame the policies that a country will develop. Um, so, in this second part of the book, I go uh, at length with uh, what, what is the meaning of economic freedom, how does it translate into economic policy making, what is important on civil and politi political rights uh, uh, in relation to economic growth. And I think here the relation is, is less obvious than for economic freedom. Civil and political rights could play positive or negative roles depending on the extent to which and how these rights are being implemented, also depending on the level of development of different countries. Maybe economic freedom is very important at the beginning of the development process, and then civil and political rights become crucial. But these are tentative uh, kind of conjectures. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then to moving to, to more to the institution and policies, um, the, I think the book um, proposed uh, ask the reader to think about the relationship between human rights, let's say, and uh, monetary policy, human rights and fiscal policy, human rights and trade policy, human rights, and which Suzanne has a lot to say, human rights and competition policy, etc., etc. How to understand the formulation of macroeconomic policies 
with a human rights uh, framework. That's what the book is going to uh, is concluding at the end in the last chapter. Um, just one minute, Jan, and I'm done. Uh, I'm coming back to this uh, quote from uh, Dickens: "The worst of times, the best of times." And uh, of course, the financial crisis of is 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 uh, modifying, you know, the uh, the way we think about uh, management and and. Uh, managing the crisis and how to deviate from the policies that have been implemented in the past. So I was quite nervous about what I wrote um, uh, in the part dealing with the financial system and especially the supervision of banks because, as I said, you know, this book is touching upon many issues but not in depth. I mean, not in too many depths, but I think in a coherent way. So I want to, to just to, to quote the last, the, the last sentence of this, uh, uh, quote the book about the... Um, what I'm seeing on regulation in the financial system. Like with all government regulation, bank regulation should remain mindful of the risk of regulatory failure. Also, much bank regulation is introduced for the best of reasons, for instance, to tackle market failures such as bank runs. It tends to be written without due consideration for the risk of regulatory failure. As a result, such failure often occurs and frequently has worse consequences than the market failings it is supposed to address. So I will leave it here. I was a uh, relief when I, when I reread that part because <laughs> I think it, uh, <laughs> it was um, not uh, inconsistent with um, what we are observing today. So I hope I was not too long, and um, I'm looking forward to your questions, comments, and thank you again for coming. Thanks very much, uh, Jean-Pierre. And uh, one of the reasons that we dis decided to uh, publish this book is because it is a, a, f a much more full-length treatment of these, these issues. Uh, we have a tendency uh, to, to deal with these issues in, in short articles and uh, maybe, maybe not to deal with them at all, but this is the first uh, full-length treatment of, of this issue combining the, the two topics that, that I know of. Well, I'm pleased to introduce Susan Aronson now. Her uh, CV is much too long for me to go through here, uh, but she really is a, an expert on all of these issues. She is an, an, an associate research professor at the international, at, of international affairs at George Washington University, where she teaches at the Elliott School of International Affairs and uh, the School of Business. Uh, she's also affiliated with the Institute for International Economic Policy at uh, George Washington University and the Danish Institute for Human Rights. Uh, she has been a senior fellow and director of globalization studies at the Keenan Institute, and uh, during this academic year she'll serve as a policy research scholar of the GW Institute of Public Policy. She has also been a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution, and she serves on advisory boards, at the advisory board for the business human, for, uh, business human Rights. She has been a pro bono advisor to the UN Special Representative on, on Transnational Corporations and Human Rights and to the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. She is the author of several books, most recently, Trade Imbalance, The Struggle to Weigh Human Rights and Trade Policy Making, published uh, by Cambridge University Press and several other books. Please help me welcome Susan Aronson. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Um, i got to tell you, 
Jean-Pierre Chauffeur is a man of extraordinary courage because he's willing to wrestle with issues and terminology that economists rarely address. And again, I'm not referring to something like the dreaded Voldemort of our children's Harry Potter books, but rather human rights. And let me just give you an example of how unusual this is. Um, you know, you may not know this, but the um, Nordic countries tried to put forward a fund at the World Bank to discuss the relationship between human rights and development and economic growth. But um, when they tried to do it, several governments on the executive board of the World Bank turned it down. While we won't name names, can you say Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and China? With those thoughts in mind, let's focus on the book. First of all, I think it is amazing for anyone to say to us, let's really rethink the conception of human rights. And that is one of the reasons I find this book so daring and so mer it deserves so much of a larger discussion. I don't know anyone who's done that. So kudos to you for doing that. That is so brave. He wants to convince the reader that when we talk about human rights, we're really talking about the protection of individual liberties and Dr. Chauffeur wants to show how economic activity and economic growth are essential to human rights. I totally agree. They're enabling agents, and far too little attention has been paid to the relationship of economic growth to human rights. Okay, I'm going to address that in a little bit. But as an economic historian who has studied how ideas and institutions evolve over time, I must stress that I disagree with his um, assertion of what human rights are human rights and the role that government should play in respecting human rights. So I'm going to stand here at Cato, the temple of individual liberties, and defend the centrality of government as an equally important agent in the achievement of human rights. Okay, now I think the book begins with a critique on the Declaration of the Right to Development. This is just bubblegum music. It's just pretty words. It has absolutely no legal standing. It's not part of the Universal Declaration. So um, it's just aspirational, um, and um, it's, it's not very important in the real world. Um, moreover, however, uh, then Dr. Chauffeur focuses on the hypocrisy inherent in international human rights norms. And here he is referring to the Universal Declaration, and I think he's making a really important point here. Um, as a person who cares deeply about human rights, um, although human rights are supposed to be universal and indivisible, the truth is every nation takes a different approach um, to human rights, and every country has different human rights objectives, priorities, policies, and experience. We need to be honest about that, okay? Probably human rights are not universal and indivisible. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a shared conception of many human rights. Okay, so there's a difference. Um, Dr. Chauffeur focuses on, he is, excuse me, he is right to stress that economic freedom is a largely forgotten human right, although it is the rationale for, let's say, the GATT WTO. Um, Dr. Chauffeur discusses this relationship, and his interest is how economic activity, which creates income, helps to make human rights actionable. He argues, and I quote, from a development perspective, 
the realization of the various economic, social, and cultural rights can be whittled down to respect for a subset of more fundamental negative rights, whose interplay will bring about the resources needed to fulfill the desired social objective. Given that only assets can generate income, a human rights approach to development should first and foremost focus on the protection of fundamental liberties, including the right to property. Um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that, only because if we take Iraq as an example, personal integrity rights, freedom from fear, Roosevelt called it, mattered more to these people than rights to fully participate in an election. So I don't, I'm not comfortable telling other people what rights they should have and make priorities. Okay, um, but the very, I just want to stress, again, while I am uncomfortable telling people what rights they should have and what rights these should be, as, and then describing as universal, um, that does not mean to say that we shouldn't think about in the 20th century what human rights are universal. And that is the debate that Dr. Schofer is trying to get us started on, or it's one part of that debate. I am really grateful. I guess I am a person of the left here, although a market-oriented person of the left. And I am really grateful to Professor Schofer for reminding us that some form of capitalism, free markets for ideas, are enabling processes for human rights. And here's where the research agenda comes in. But that relationship is not one-sided. Human rights protection may also be a precondition for capitalism as well as democracy. Without rights established by law and respected by policymakers, people cannot articulate or defend their freedom, ideas, or property. Technological and scientific progress cannot occur without the legal protection of some human rights. But here is where we part company. For citizens to realize these rights, governments have a responsibility to put these rights into law as well as into effect. And that means we, at the national level, which is where elections are held, must make some difficult choices. It's true that economic freedom is reduced when uh, government puts in place taxes or regulations are substituted for personal choice and voluntary exchange. But human rights protection can be one way to stimulate investment and economic growth. And this is what I find in my own research. For the last year, I've been looking at both empirically the role of the WTO in particular human rights and something called the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiatives. And what I find is that governments use protection of human rights to signal the rule of law. What are they doing? They're signaling even-handedness. Okay? Now, that said, truth is us scholars are not only a little bit brain dead, but we haven't been really working that hard to examine the relationship in human rights and growth. And again, that's why I think this book is so terrific, because um, we need to look at that. Again, economic growth and human rights, and then what human rights need to be in place for economic growth to occur. I've been trying to get funding to provide incentives to economists to do this research. And again, they've got to do it. Let me tell you why. I'm confused. I've seen convincing empirical work that shows with greater trade, I'm not talking about particular trade agreements, but trade per se, okay, governments work harder to protect personal integrity rights. Again, uh, personal integrity rights are freedom from arbitrary arrest, imprisonment, torture. Um, why would that right improve with trade 
but labor rights tend to disimprove. We don't know. We need to know more about that relationship. I agree with Dr. Chauffeur that policymakers around the world must find a new balance between market rules and state intervention. After all, as markets change, policies must change too. At the same time, I'm not in agreement with Professor Chauffeur that state coercion conflicts with human rights in a normative way. Okay, I, I don't think coercion is always the wrong strategy. I'd like to see us avoid coercion and, and focus on incentives, but sometimes you have to use coercion. Um, I believe that Amartya Sen's path-breaking work on human rights and human capabilities is an essential bridge to better understand the roles of governments in protecting, respecting, and advancing human rights. In my mind, perhaps I'm wrong, Sen is saying that people are the ultimate resource of nations. Some governments, shall we say Burma, um, and countries are unwilling to invest in their people. You and I have a collective responsibility to help those people who have no voice. We must also recognize that it takes considerable governance expertise to respect human rights. I cite as example the United States, okay? We're this advanced industrialized country, and yet we have real problems in terms of promoting human rights. And a human rights quasi-paragon, uh, such as, let's say, Sweden, also has many problems. Here's why. It is so difficult to uh, protect human rights because sometimes governments have to intervene and other times governments have to put themselves in a straitjacket to, to stop themselves from intervening. No government has figured out how to do this well all of the time. Okay. Now, Dr. Chauffeur spends much of this well-researched book arguing with philosophers. I want to argue with him. I want other scholars to join that debate. Um, I, I'm not satisfied yet with the ideas on policy. I want to reframe the problem, okay, as a positivist. Let me say, are there incentives that policymakers can offer to, let's say, other governments to promote human rights? Let's think about human rights as a market, okay? We are pretty good in terms of our foreign aid at using foreign aid to improve the supply of good governance, but we really know very little about how to stimulate the demand, the grassroots demand for good governance, okay? We need to work harder to empower people to demand their rights. All right, I've been talking for a long time, so let me conclude. Um, so again, summarizing what Dr. Chauffeur has done here and why it's so important, and, and I wish 300 people had come, but um, that will happen the next time. Um, he is proposing not only that we rethink what human rights are, right, and how they relate to development, how they relate to economic growth, but he's also making some suggestions as to what policymakers can do about it, okay? This is the first time I've ever seen this, at least by an economist, and I think it really deserves attention. So let me conclude by quoting the words of the immortal Brittany Spears, who is a passionate advocate <laughs> of laissez-faire and parental irresponsibility. In her latest hit, she sings, there are two types, I won't sing it for you, there are two types of people in the world, those that entertain and those that observe. I guess I'm a split personality because I like to do both, although I also like to wear panties when I go out. 
I hope you found my comments on Dr. Schofer's books, book entertaining. And let me add what I've observed as a market-preferring scholar with a deep interest in human rights. I believe government can, but doesn't always do good. I believe in the end it is governments that have the primary responsibility to promote, protect, and respect human rights. And if we want human rights to be promoted, respected, and advanced over time, first, we must figure out a way to define what those human rights are. And again, that is what Dr. Chauffeur has challenged us to do. Um, and we must find ways to encourage policymakers to promote and meet their human rights responsibility. And in my mind, that means finding ways to increase the demand and supply of human rights. Dr. Chauffeur has made an important contribution to that discussion. In fact, he's begun it. So I hope you'll buy his book, read it carefully, and join us in that discussion. Thanks for hearing me out. Okay. Thanks very much, Susan. That was stimulating. And uh, we will... We will just go directly to questions. If you have any questions, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation and uh, whatever question you want to ask. I can be Did you any questions? Okay, we'll take question right up front. Karen Hudis, ex-World Bank um, from the legal department. And one of the questions I have is just... Um, how little we know. Uh, one of the areas that I think bears further research is the relationship between um, not democracy, but one subset in democracy, which is the right to form civil society organizations. It turns out that some economists have started to find out whether that particular ability is at the core of economic growth. And there are very encouraging um, signs that that might be the case. But we simply don't know. And, and so my question is, um, who, who is forming the, uh, the community of researchers to actually find out what we need to know and what we don't know? Take a couple of questions. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, freedom of association is one of the freedom rights, you know, uh, the negative rights I was talking about in the presentation. The fact that people are free to associate themselves with others, it could be for an association, it could be for a corporation, and then, of course, as soon as you think about corporation, you think about enterprise and creation of wealth. So freedom of association is a fundamental human right. It's um, what makes the... Um, industrial net, what it is, and all the social groups that are around, you know, the production system. So freedom of association is clearly an important component of, of, uh, of development. And um, there is then a relationship between freedom association and the, and the democratic process. So you ask the question about what do we know in terms of uh, the role being played by freedom of association in terms of explaining growth. I think some people have been researching various aspects of negative rights to try to impute uh, the, um, uh, the role of different components. And um, there, usually, these negative rights, uh, they would fe features 
like freedom of association, freedom of press, uh, free election, etc., etc., would come out as positively explaining uh, economic growth, especially freedom, freedom of association. Uh, democratic processes is more ambivalent. Uh, also, democratic processes are always welcome from a moral standpoint, from purely utilitarian approach. Uh, the, here, the results are more mixed. Um, but certainly for freedom of, of association, this is something that is central to, uh, to the human enterprise, if you wish. And, uh, and this sh should be uh, protected, promoted, and um, on the agenda of especially developing countries, least developed countries, to make sure that all the energy, all the people's energy, you know, of the population can be uh, channeled freely by all those individuals in a way that they think is best for themselves. Can I comment on that? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When you made your comment, I heard in civil society organizations, because there is no um, right to be part of an organization as a basic human right, but where Jean-Pierre here, right to association, I was thinking the right to organize and collectively bargain. In other words, to use your organization to affect your economic circumstances. And I just use that to riff to, like, say, um, it's very difficult to group, this is not your question, but uh, to group human rights and define what is what kind of human right. And um, only because I cite this, because in looking at the WTO, we've been trying to find a template so uh, statistical information that we could use as a rubric to show due process rights. And the closest we could come up was the right to free and fair elections, um, which is, you'd think, is not a due process right. But in this listing that I've seen, and anybody can come up with their own definitions of what rights fit in what rubrics, um, <laughs> someone, a law professor defined it as such. So I don't know. But have you seen the World Bank Global Governance page, which has a ton of research sources, um, a scholarship, and there's a lot on civil society organizations? a lot easier to cut through debate if you simply try to look at correlations. And as I said, people that started to look at the correlation between the ability to form civil society organizations and economic growth, that was there. Democracy and economic growth, that wasn't there. And the point that I wanted to make is that uh, the Chinese are actually reforming their laws to promote uh, freedom of association and civil society organizations because they seem to be um, agnostic. Um, so long as it promotes economic growth, they want it, and that's something that they want. So I'm just trying to say that uh, my, my bottom line is that we don't seem to know what we're doing, and we need to try to find a way to learn. I agree. There's a, there's a lot of research to be done on this. As some of you know, the Cato Institute with the Fraser Institute in Canada publishes a yearly report called Economic Freedom of, of the World. That took a long time to do, even though for years... Uh, since the time of Adam Smith, economists had been saying, if you have more trade and more freedom, you're going to be more prosperous. Well, we did this empirical exercise and uh, worked very closely with Milton Friedman and other uh, leading economists to, to develop this so that we could approach it in an empirical way. And, of course, we found a strong relationship. Milton Friedman was telling us uh, that 
the next step in this process is to incorporate civil and political liberties and see what the relationship is between those and prosperity and with each other and uh, exactly to look into these types of, of questions. It turns out that this is an extremely difficult exercise. We're looking into that right now, but we find that there's there's a lot of da- there's a lot of methodological issues. There's a lot of data that, that's missing. You would think that the human rights groups that have been working on these issues for decades would have developed uh, an index of uh, women's rights around the world, for example. As far as I know, that doesn't exist. Well, what, let me let me point you to a couple of um, actually there is something called the Bertelsmann's Transformation Index, which unfortunately mm-hmm. is pretty new, but it's an attempt to... Yeah. The Bertelsmann Transformation Index, which is pretty new, I think it's basically three years old, it has a, some very interesting uh, data on this, and I think they've asked the right questions. Um, I've been looking at these data sets for, it seems like, forever, trying to find appropriate ones. There's something called the Siri Human Rights Data Set out of SUNY Binghamton, and um, it's a very good start looking at human rights performance since 1980. It includes women's rights. Um, but uh, it doesn't include all human rights under the Universal Declaration. By the way, that data set out of SUNY Binghamton is funded by the World Bank. Um, if anybody wants to know about data sets, just email me because I'm constantly looking at them trying to find um, good ones. And we're all, again, this is, um, Jean-Pierre, is this a good way to phrase it? It's the beginning, to look at these questions empirically. And Yep, I agree. We'll take uh, another question right here, please. Uh, Steve Williams. Um, I guess I, I would suggest that the rule of law is... Essential, either essential component of the sets of rights you speak of, uh, or it's an essential precondition, and probably both, in fact. And uh, I know the World Bank has programs promoting the rule of law. Um, so I have two questions. What do you think of the effectiveness of those programs, if, if you're free to speak on that? Uh, and second, are there any other World Bank programs uh, that would seem to directly promote uh, human rights uh, and the rule of law? Thank you. I think on, on the first question, I would not comment in terms of the uh, effectiveness of, of these programs, first of all, because I don't know these programs. You see, So it's, it's an easy answer for me. Uh, but the point about the role, the role of rule of law is key. I mean, in the book, uh, I try to focus, when we talk about institution, it's a nebulous kind of world in the sense that there are many types of institutions. So I try to boil down the discussion on institution around four uh, relationships, how freedom is main, being mainstream in four relationships. And the first of them is the rule of law. It's a relationship between the individual and the state. That's a rule of law. That's the first dimension. The second dimension is the relationship between the individual and the object that they uh, consider their own, which is the uh, property rights institution. The third one is the uh, relationship among individuals, and this is a participatory democratic institutions that are needed. And the last one is the relationship between individuals and uh, their representative, which has to do with the governance uh, governance institution. And I think through these four 
dimension, you capture a, a wide range of different type of institution. And rule of law is clearly um, one one of them. And um, there are many programs at the World Bank. I mean, the question about the relationship between what we do at the World Bank and, and human rights. Also, what we do is not cast in human rights terms. The uh, penalty of what the World Bank is doing is to promote opportunities and to promote uh, uh, equity in a sense of, not necessarily in the sense of ex post equity, but ex ante equity in terms of uh, uh, opportunities. And then you can, you can decline all the World Bank program for health, for education, the social safety nets, for infrastructure, and so on and so forth. And uh, as, as far as the institution is concerned, we have, it was mentioned, you know, the governance, uh, we have the, uh, obviously the governance programs. We, uh, we, we have, the, the World Bank is, is trying to deal with the development problems through all these different angles. And the institutional angles has been quite prominent, uh, I would say, over the last uh, uh, 10 and 15 years, as the role of institution in development has become uh, known and more important in development thinking. Okay, we'll take a question over here first. Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. I'm with the PBGC. I'm a little disturbed of the the idea of the of human rights as a key determinant of economic growth, as though the real purpose of human life is economic growth. I'd feel more happier if it, there were some way of measuring human happiness, because from a purely libertarian point of view, I would like to believe that the greater the human presence of human rights, the happier citizens are, rather than that having the implicit assumption that economic growth is the purpose of human life and we have human rights as a, but a tool to achieve economic growth. But whether human happiness in any society could be ob objectively measured, um, God only knows. <laughs> Which God? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a very good point, actually. Um, <clears throat> and I think this is something I'm trying to address just in the introduction uh, when I'm flagging the fact that the book is is not utilitarian only and is not normative only in a sense that economic human rights can have an impact on, on, on economic performance uh, through the mechanism that I'm explaining in the book, but that in themselves they have merit. And uh, superior economic outcome is not always uh, desirable if certain rights are being breached in the process. So it's not a philosophy of just the, the end uh, is, is important, you know, uh, and that's why I'm trying to explain at the end of the introduction when I'm saying that I try to reconcile these two approaches, normativeness and utilitarianism, in terms of uh, making sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that the purpose of life, as you said, is not necessarily economic growth, it's happiness. And actually, there is some work being done in the economics of happiness. I, I know of a book of, uh, dealing with these uh, issues, and I think it's... it's this will be the next step, uh, because obviously economic growth and development is uh, being searched because it, hopefully, and that's maybe not even sure, it increases people's happiness. But then I think here again, the research agenda is yet uh, is huge and is just uh, uh, needs to be to be developed. Well, I I 
disagree with the premise there, only because I don't, I think you're defining human rights differently than I would, and um, I'll use the WTO slash GATS definition of human rights, which um, is about human welfare, enhancing human welfare. And it, I, I just have no, you know, I've seen some of those studies on happiness, for example, Carol Graham's work. I'm just not convinced because I'm deeply uncomfortable with the notion of how you could possibly define that. I'm happy that my mother is surviving uh, the chemotherapy that she's undergoing at this moment, but I'm not happy that she has cancer. Am I happy? I have no idea. The dimensions of that is, seems to me empirically impossible to ascertain. I, I totally agree. We, w of course, I'm in favor of happiness, too, but, but uh, <laughs> uh, let's not give the wrong impression over here. But the, the fact of the matter is all of the work that's been done on happiness is so methodologically flawed that uh, it's, it's really impossible, and it can lead to all sorts of policy mischief in addition to that. So I, I would stay away from that. Our own uh, scholar, Will Wilkinson, has done quite a bit of work on this in this area in case you're interested in looking up his work on the Cato website. Uh, we can take a question right there. Thank you. Uh, my name is Arshad Mahmoud, and I'm a journalist uh, in Washington, and I have some affiliation with the World Bank. I'm an editor and writer. Uh, the point um, uh, I thought I should ask the, the question, there are countries where uh, the human rights itself, this, it really doesn't exist in their lexicon, like the Gulf uh, states. I don't know how many of you have watched the ABC News light, Nightline broadcast last night. Uh, it was one of the most despicable, horrible act of human rights violation uh, committed by one of the um, royal family member. Uh, and they are rich people, you know. I mean, they have got nothing to do with human rights. And, uh, and I don't know how do you address that part uh, of your... Yeah. And there are countries, uh, for instance, like Singapore and South Korea, which also didn't have much uh, uh, human rights thing uh, until uh, even even today. Um, and they are they are rich people, they are developed countries. So I, I would appreciate if you can shed some light on that. And some people, where I, I come from, Bangladesh, and you know there are some people advocating for a strong benevolent dictatorship to uh, develop the country. Honestly, I mean, we have a democracy, but it's doing more harm uh, to the development than, uh, than any good. And the other point I, I thought I should raise is you mentioned about uh, uh, the freedom of uh, movement across international borders. And um, uh, I would appreciate if you can... Uh, address this issue from the point of view that uh, it would create or trigger a flood of economic refugees, um, as we have witnessed in countries like in many countries in Europe, and they are having trouble transplanting themselves into a new annual culture and causing a lot of trouble. Okay. Instead of doing that, if uh, you could um, uh, answer by saying that those countries which are not developed we should all try to do something to, to, so that they can develop themselves and, okay. and take care of their economy. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yes, let me start with the last point on the, uh, the role of uh, freedom of movement across national borders. Um, this is a debate about, you know, whether usually this debate is framed in the context of the state, as while this book is, look at, is looking at the issue from the point of view of the individual. Often we talk about brain drain, brain gain, whether the state is winning or losing from the fact that the population is allowed to move across borders through mod 4 or this type of issues. Um, I think that's not the perspective of that book. That book is, talking, is looking at the individual and, to why, and, 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 and is asking the question, why are certain individuals uh, being forced to stay within certain territories? And, um, and from that perspective, obviously, there is no, there is no moral ground for that. <laughs> there is very little uh, justification for that. Uh, the only justification is that, as you mentioned yourself, uh, we have a big problem with us in the sense that, um, and a politically difficult problem to solve. Um, policies have been restrictive for many years, and as a result of these restrictions, disequilibrium have appeared, meaning that a large, potentially large group of population are willing to move across national borders because they were not allowed to move over time, back and forth, we have created, we have created a huge disequilibrium. If you want to make an analogy, you can think about a price system when you control prices. And then when a policymaker is faced with the reality that price needs to be freed, the big concern is about the, uh, the jump in prices. I cannot free prices because there would be a massive increase in prices. So, so what is the solution to that? It's, obviously, it's a politically difficult solution. It has to be phased out over time. But I think the principle itself should be what should be guiding policymakers so that at the end of certain process, population across the world should be free to move as they so wish, and, uh, and a movement would be back and forth. And the experience actually has been that um, countries that have relied on, on migrants during one phase of their development then saw these migrants come back home. Uh, and I think Ireland was a very good uh, case in point in Europe, uh, a country that has traditionally sent his uh, boys and girls abroad, and uh, back in the, with the reform of the 90s was able to uh, reabsorb uh, all, this, um, uh, all this population. So we need to think about it in terms, it's not just a one-way phenomenon. It's if it is allowed over time, because we need to deal with the stock of people that are willing to move today, but once this is dealt with, then it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inflow and outflow problem that should be manageable as any type of uh, inflow and outflows. Yes, on the first question, the rich countries, I mean, this is something that, of course, if you sit on large resources and domains, you are rich by definition. Um, so regardless of, you know, of course, the policies have less of an impact because you have this, this endowment and you just manage it and run it. So the conditions there are very specific. What I'm talking in the book is about creating wealth uh, through uh, people interactions. And uh, that's not the mechanism that is being used by this country to, to be rich uh, in the first place. So it's, it's a bit of a different debate. Um, what I'm looking at is, you know, the countries that have to create through entrepreneurship, through enterprise, through uh, crea creation of, of ideas and wealth, their own prosperity. Uh, 
And uh, as to th the point you were making about the fact that some advanced or emerging markets have not the best uh, track record in terms of human rights, and you mentioned, I think, a few of them, uh, that's true. And, um, and I think um, what I'm talking about is not magic ballot. It's not like, you know, you do, you do certain type of policies and you kind of mainstream freedom and then suddenly everything happens. There are exceptions. Obviously, and, they, and this is a complicated process. And um, I was mentioning that economic freedom is very important to kickstart economic growth and development, and this is what all these countries that you were mentioning have done in the past. But they have, been ref re they have refrained from civil and political rights. And civil and political rights is stage two, if I, if I may say, of the, uh, of the shuttle. Stage two in the sense that once you reach a certain level of development through economic freedom, then you need, a, you need to have m even more of a challenge in your society in terms of ideas and policy making. And in order to generate the debate of ideas, you need to have people free to speak their mind. And soon you realize that if you want to make even further progress in terms of economic development, you need to allow this freedom to take place. That's where civil and political rights are entering into the picture in terms of uh, economic growth in, in, in some of utilitarian terms. Also, in normative terms, they should be there in the first place. We have time for at least one more question, and we'll take it right there. Um, I am here, or oh, my name is Marta Roxburgh. I'm here primarily as a student and researcher on human rights-based approach to development. And in a time where a lot of focus from donors are given to accountability and results. How would you think that a good way to measure development, what indices can one um, develop um, that are needed today that are not there? So in terms of indices, um, there are a couple of sources available. Ian uh, was mentioning the Fraser Institute and the work that is being done in the context of the economic freedom of the world where you would have a series, a time series of countries' performance uh, through uh, economic indicators, freedom to, to trade, freedom to establish a company, freedom to, uh, to uh, 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 establish a contract that you want, a labor contract, etc. So you have already there some element of economic freedom that can be measured. Uh, for civil and political rights, uh, you have the... Um, uh, the Freedom House, um, which is also providing some indicators, also there, perhaps uh, the comprehensiveness and robustness may be uh, more under question, in a sense that you know the methodology is more complicated. Uh, uh, so there, there is work to be done for civil and political rights. Uh, Jan was mentioning, you know, the work that uh, the Fraser Institute was trying to launch to replicate what has been done for economic freedom and the, and the parameters of economic freedom for civil and political rights. But this raises a number of, of methodological issues that are difficult to, to, to deal with, and, uh, and, but I'm sure this can be done. Of course, it needs resources and it needs you know, attention, um, but this is certainly what this book is advocating in terms of you know, in terms of providing development assistance in the right framework, in the right circumstances, in order to be complementary to whatever domestic efforts are being done for the purpose of development, this would be very much welcome because that's how development and systems can, can contribute and make a difference. 
And um, since you know, the record in terms of ODA has been mixed, in a sense that a development assistance has not always been given in the right framework, it's very important to have an understanding of this framework in the first place. And this is uh, an ex-ante decision that needs to be made, and it needs to be made on, on, on robust uh, analysis with hopefully uh, data sets and quantified, a quantified approach cannot be judgmental. It can, judgment can, can, be, can play a role, but it should be, to the extent possible, grounded into actual uh, facts. And that's what the difficulty of the exercise, how to ground a civil and political rights assessment of a country in a quantitative term. And uh, that's clearly something that should be on the agenda of uh, organizations like yours. I'm much more skeptical about the ability of groups like the World Bank to promote these ideas, uh, including economic freedom and so on. Our, our uh, economic freedom report, I think, is very useful for individual countries that want to know what to do right. And as it turns out, countries do tend to reform based on their own domestic uh, factors. Maybe there was an economic crisis or a political crisis or the right people uh, came to power with a certain set of ideas. But the record of, of the international aid organizations in promoting growth or reform uh, is not very good, in my view. Uh, so I wouldn't put too much emphasis on their ability to promote all sorts of other good things. I think that the usefulness of this discussion is uh, to make us better understand what all these relationships are and hope that uh, uh, different countries... Uh, un learn these lessons themselves, including through the demonstration effect, which, in my view, is uh, among the most powerful factors in, in promoting growth and reform. Susan, did you want to make yeah, any final comments? Um, since I take a more expansive view of human rights than these gentlemen, um, I obviously would, would, would point you to different rubrics for a setting, a sort of, you know, examining this, and I would point you to UNCTAD, you should look at the Bertelsmann Transformation Index and the kind of questions that they asked. I was very impressed by the methodology. Um, although, again, I think, you know, what can you say about two years or three-year exercise? But it's a start. Um, another one that I really like, which is also funded by the bank, um, is Global Integrity, which is a um, really fascinating organization uh, which tries to measure, instead of corruption, it tries to measure counterweights to corruption. So what are the strength of the press? Is the press free? Uh, what role does Congress play as a check on the executive? Uh, while that's not a development indicator, they also ask very interesting questions about people's ability to influence their own destiny, um, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm deeply uncomfortable with Fraser Index. Um, I'm more comfortable with Cato's. Um, but, I, but um, okay, thank you for correcting me. Okay, that's the one, thank you. Um, um, I think... Um, um, the bank has. Have you followed what the bank has done on the? Um, the um, it's called um, accountability and something else. But if you go to the global governance <laughs> website, it has a whole bunch of indicators that were developed by Danny Kaufman and his staff over a ten-ish year period, if not more. I think it's thirteen years of data now. And that's a very interesting place to start.
they also have an index of all the root, all the various data sets and from Polity 4, which is a political uh, uh, political science data set onward. If you want to talk about this further, we can do that at the end of the thing. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, and uh, I'm sure we'll just keep going on this discussion for many years, but we can continue upstairs. Please uh, join me in thanking both of our speakers today for their comments. <laughs> <laughs>